Hey guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Michael Allen. He's a, a filmmaker, and he recently produced a, a film dealing with the uh, climate change crisis and kind of solutions on how to kind of deal with it or address it and uh, was recommended to reach out to him and uh, we connected. So Michael, thanks for uh, taking the time to chat today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this opportunity to be on your show. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about your background. You're a filmmaker. How did you get into uh, making films? I don't really consider myself a filmmaker yet. I started out as a uh, part-time writer, and over the uh, last couple of years with the collapse of the digital publishing industry, I decided that a uh, film would be a better, uh, more viable platform for getting my ideas out to uh, an audience. And it seems like I've taken the plunge, this is my first film, and I took the plunge of uh, transferring my writing skills to uh, film. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And that is uh, something I've never done before. This is my very first film. But it's, it's come out really well, and I'm pretty happy with you. Oh, awesome. Congrats. Um, definitely uh, a lot to be said for having the uh, skill set to be able to remake yourself in an economy that's changing the way that it is. Yeah, and I would say also I, I do have a day job. This is not how I make my living, not yet. Um, I am a financial analyst, so I'm familiar with numbers and uh, performing uh, analysis to take complicated things and make them simple. And that's one of my strengths as a writer is I'm able to take pretty complicated uh, information and break it down into simpler concepts that people can instantly grasp. And I think that's one of the beauties of this film that I created called How Hot Is It Going To Get? about the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And the climate crisis is extremely complicated. For most Americans, it seems like it's an overwhelming issue that they can barely wrap their minds around. And I simply decided to take the question, how hot is it going to get because of global warming? And answer that question for uh, an American audience. And the answer is surprising, it's shocking, and it instantly clarifies in people what is at stake with the climate crisis. And that's the beauty of this film, and we can talk about that a little bit more in detail if you like. Yeah, well definitely. Like, so what are, what's, what's the, uh, what do the numbers look like in terms of temperature, in terms of the, the track that we're on now? Well, let's talk about why people don't know the answer. That's probably the most revealing thing about this film, is the climate uh, crisis was, for lack of a better word, discovered by the scientific community. And the scientific community communicates primarily in the metric system. And here in America, we don't really use the metric system. We use Fahrenheit to describe our temperatures, and science uses Celsius to describe temperatures. Another big barrier to understanding the climate crisis is that most of the communication coming from the scientific community is about the change in the average temperature for the entire Earth. So if you think of the entire Earth, there's lots of different components to the Earth's temperature. Uh, the average temperature for the Earth, let's say the scientists are saying the average temperature for the whole Earth will increase by 2 degrees Celsius, perhaps in the next you know, 50 years. It's already come up 1 degree Celsius, but it might go up 2 degrees Celsius in the next 30 years, by 2050. Well, to most Americans, two degrees Celsius doesn't sound terribly threatening. It sounds really uh, like something not even important. And that's because it's concealing within the average the truly dangerous higher temperatures that will be uh, more common 
unfortunately, if the Earth gets that much warmer. And here's a way to think about it, and I touch on it in my film, in, in a pretty, pretty well, beautiful uh, visual sequence. The average includes uh, daytime, it includes nighttime, the average includes temperatures on the land, it includes the temperature of the ocean, the, a the average includes summertime, it includes wintertime, and the average includes the equator, as well as the polar regions. So the average includes a lot of these colder temperatures within it. So when you look at the average, it really tells you nothing about the maximum temperatures. And so with that information, uh, you're really not communicating to people what the danger is by saying Earth's temperature could go up 2 degrees Celsius or 4 degrees Celsius or 6 degrees Celsius. You're not communicating anything about the danger. And people are, in Americans especially, <clears throat> excuse me, are pretty much... Uh, uh, not connecting with these uh, Celsius averages. So the the beauty of my film was I reached out to some climate scientists and I, you know through email and I asked them, what does this mean in terms of the hottest, hottest, hottest day of year on the land where people live? And the number is truly terrifying. Even if the Earth's temperature goes up as little as two degrees Celsius, uh, there are temperatures buried within that average. It would make um, large areas of the United States uh, deadly if you went outside for even just an hour or so. Well, I think like even in the past in the past year, you can see examples of this really, especially in in India and uh, around the uh, Indian Ocean region, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and so forth, where you've had these kinds of sorry about that, my dog. The um, these spikes in terms of temperatures and um, you know, really just a, a lot of people dying from heat stroke. Yeah, and the human body is is not equipped to deal with a... You, when you talk about temperature, it's really important to include the humidity. The Earth is becoming more humid as it warms up, and as Earth gets hotter, some of the circulation patterns, the way humidity blows across the land will be changing as well. And, and keep in mind, we've already warmed the Earth's average temperature by one degree Celsius over the last 150 years. And we're expected to warm it by another degree Celsius within the next 30 years. So these temperatures we're seeing today in these very hot regions of the, the uh, Middle East will become much more common in huge areas of the world, including the southeastern United States. And so it's important to talk about not just the temperature, but the humidity. For example, if it gets to be 130 degrees in Death Valley, California, that temperature is able to get that high because there's not much humidity. So when the air is very dry, the air temperature can go up dramatically. But what's coming to us with climate change are the emergence of these, what I call in the film, super humid heat waves. So the air temperature may only get up to 90, 95, maybe 100 degrees. But if it's accompanied with 90% humidity, 95% humidity, you'll end up with a heat index of at least 131 degrees. And at that temperature, 131 degree heat index, that's where all mammals start to die from heat stroke and die quickly. Not just humans, but any mammal that is outside. And that would be an ecological and, and human disaster across large parts of the uh, tropics, where many people have no electricity and no way to get away from this type of heat. It would be a disaster across the southeastern United States, which is unfortunately an early strike zone for these types of temperatures. And uh, if there was, um, you know, a, a huge heat wave like that across, let's say, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, 
the human population could probably get into air conditioning, but all of the plants, uh, not the plants, we don't know so much about that, but the livestock, all of the wildlife, we'd, we'd be dead within a couple hours. And you have to assume also that our electrical power system would be robust enough to withstand, you know, temperatures that high for that long and keep the electricity going, keep everybody cool. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of our power plants um, are require liquid to be cooled in the southeast especially, and if there was some problem keeping those power plants cool enough, you could have a power failure, power failure that would expose huge amounts of the American population to these types of temperatures. That specific scenario is not talked about in the film, but it is, it's definitely a... Uh, something to think about when you think about these temperatures. Well, definitely, it also affects the fact the fact that you know jobs that you're doing outside, whether it's in terms of construction or landscaping or even uh, delivery, whatever it might be. I mean, clearly, higher temperatures are going to affect how productive a person is going to be in terms of actually making stuff if it's being done outside. Yeah, and that would, you know, that we would start to notice that well before we get to two degrees Celsius the warming. We're starting to notice that now, but if we raise the Earth's average temperature just to one and a half degrees Celsius the warming, uh, you know, certainly many tasks that people do outside would be um, un, un, undoable in that type of temperature. One of the things about the film, though, and I think your show is specifically talking about investing and the impact of these issues on the investment climate. There's two big reveals in this movie, and number one is how odd is it going to get? Most Americans are simply unaware of this. Most young people who will be alive during the 2050s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, uh, they're unaware of it as well. They're just simply unaware. They don't know. And they also don't know that we could rapidly change these trajectories if more people, you know, demanded policy responses from the government, like, you know, you know regulating greenhouse gases and, and that sort of thing. People are simply unaware of the power they have to change these things. So from a financial perspective, I think one of the bigger shocks coming to the economy uh, – will come long before these heat waves, and that will be the realization among investors, among the public, that fossil fuels are not something that we can continue to burn, you know, not even past the 2030s. I mean, we need to start phasing them out now and try to get them phased out probably within the next 10 to 15 years. Once that realization hits, it'll be kind of like the, the housing bubble. You know, that, that thing popped in about a month. And, you know, within a month, the whole, you know, attitude about these mortgage-backed securities had completely and forever changed. And I think what's, what we're looking at is once the public, public becomes aware of how hot it's going to get, especially young people during their lives, the demand for policy changes will be uh, unstoppable. And once that happens, the companies that are invested in this fossil fuel in, in this infrastructure are going to have their, their financial prospects you know, completely upended. And, uh, and that will happen quickly. I don't think that will be a slow, gradual process. It will be like the housing bubble. It'll be like Some people have called it the carbon bubble. And once that pops, uh, the, the, the impact it will have on those companies and the people who are investing in those companies will be you know, pretty devastating, I think. So what is the solution as far as the political solutions to making a change now? Well, we have lots of, you know, one of the things I talk about in my film, which is a lot of people are unaware of this as well, is the climate crisis is not a scientific problem. We already know what is going on. We know how it's happening. We know how to stop it. So the climate crisis is not a technological problem. We have most of the technology we need right now to fix it. And we'll probably have the other little pieces in the next 10 to 15 years if we seriously you know, invest in our resources in research development and bringing to market some new, newer technologies. 
And uh, it's also not much of a political problem except for the fossil fuel industry. I mean, the politics of decarbonizing the economy work out pretty much great for everybody on, on the earth today. And it works out fantastic for everybody who hasn't been born yet. So the politics is really just the fossil fuel industry. That's really the only barrier. And I think once people realize that it's only a political solution, it's only a political problem that requires a political solution, I think people will be more inclined to to express their feelings through politics about this issue and express their choices about this issue through politics. I think right now there's a lot of resistance to doing that because people feel like it can't be solved, it's too big, it's too complicated, we don't know what's happening. I mean, these are all incorrect assumptions, but this is what people believe, or that we don't have the technology. And the truth is, we know what's happening, we have the technology, and for economic-wise, it's going to be a massive improvement in job opportunities and economic growth for everyone except the fossil fuel industry. Shifting your entire energy system from carbon to renewables is going to create a bazillion, jillion jobs in energy, transportation, uh, re-engineering our cities so they're more sustainable. And it's going to be the biggest job boom for average people that we have probably ever seen. And I think once that message gets out there and people realize, hey, this is not that big a deal, we just need politically to, to nudge the system in the right direction, I think the, the, the political response will be swift. And for those that are... Um, have been those industries that have been imposing this and resisting this change, I think they're going to be swept away, just like the, the mortgage-backed security industry was, was swept away during the housing bubble. Well, I think that there's plenty of... Um, there are plenty of indications that a lot of Middle Eastern countries have already started pursuing clean energy technologies because they see what's coming with the end of oil. So I think that there's definitely a realization among some in that industry that uh, the change is coming. And, you know, it's been a matter of really lobbying dollars, you know, preventing, you know, whether it's a carbon tax or some other reform to take place to be able to put a proper price on carbon and to start shifting behavior. Yeah, and I think there is, um, you know, from the big companies for sure, there's been a recognition that this is a real deal and it's going to be impacting their business quite soon. What's interesting, I don't talk about this in my film, but one of the big reveals I talk about in my film too is how, how, how a low rate of voter turnout by young people is enabling this, this uh, barrier this, to, to decarbonizing the economy. More young people voted at higher rates, at the same rates as the baby boomers. You know, we would have solved climate change, you know, a while ago. And as soon as they decide to do that, the solutions will be there. And the risk for the oil industry, the big companies, from what I've read on some of their proposals, a lot of their proposals are designed to keep burning fossil fuels until the very 11th, you know, the last possible minute. So they would like to see with their carbon tax structure and the way it's phased in, if we continue burning fossil fuels for the next 10 or 15 years and then somehow drop off a cliff in terms of our consumption and switch to a renewable uh, system, uh, that 10 to 15 years would probably make uh, some of these higher temperatures inevitable if we keep doing that for 10 or 15 years. And so a lot of their proposals about decarbonizing the economy for the oil companies are really self-serving, and they're not serving anybody's interest except the big fossil fuel companies. None of them, uh, to, to my knowledge, have imposed an aggressive Let's start phasing this stuff out in the next five to ten years. I mean, aggressively, you know, implementing uh, subsidies for electric cars, 
uh, aggressively you know, expanding the electrical grid across America to move renewables all around the country fast. And unfortunately for, for them, that's the only solution that's going to save us from a two degree Celsius of warming or worse. If we want to keep the earth below two degrees Celsius of warming or even below one, one and a half degrees Celsius, which is probably the only sane choice, we need to rapidly start phasing out fossil fuels you know, in the 2020s, aggressively, and that is far beyond any of the carbon tax solutions that the oil companies have put forth. And in fact, there's one proposal out there I have read about, and they, they would support a carbon tax, the oil companies would support a carbon tax in Congress, but only if it exempts them from all future liability for the climate crisis. So, you know, it's so self-serving, and it, it does nothing for America, does nothing for today's young people in terms of their, you know, ability to, to survive, you know, up into their 80s and 90s, you know, their lives. Um, so, so I think people will see, see that pretty quickly once they realize how hot is it going to get. Because right now, nobody has a clue what kind of heat is coming to their town during their lifetimes. Is there a place where, um, in terms of another country, where youth have been able to be mobilized in terms of addressing climate issues and be politically active to enact changes? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I think other countries which have easier access to the ballot have higher turnout rates among youth. But in general, older people tend to vote more than young people. I think that's pretty much true across the developed world. Um, I, I think in other countries, uh, youth probably turn out at higher rates because it's easier to vote. There's not as much paperwork between them and their ballot. And I think the other problem is that, you know, you got to remember, this, this denial of the climate crisis and this political um, obfuscation of, of solving it is unique to the United States. I mean, other countries, sure, are taking, you know, a long time to get to the policies they need, but other countries in uh, Western Europe, uh, in other parts of the world, developed countries as well, are being really aggressive in terms of solving it. Even the communist dictatorship of China is making you know heroic strides in decarbonizing their economy uh, quickly. I think one year I read that you know a year or two ago, I think China had installed enough photovoltaic uh, solar panels in their country that was the equivalent of all the photovoltaic panels installed in the United States. And they did that like in one year. So these other countries don't have these these political barriers, you know, blocking them from aggressively passing, you know, passing legislation that aggressively, you know, deals with the climate crisis. That's, that's unique here to, to the United States. So the need for young people to vote isn't as urgent because the older generation gets it too and they're voting. And, you know, there's not this fossil fuel industry blocking all these solutions in their, in their politics. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I've read similar uh, cases where definitely China's done a lot in terms of addressing climate issues. I think that they have some pretty severe environmental issues that they need to deal with, that they're balancing growth of an economy with trying to be positioned better going forward to be able to out out compete other countries but um, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the political solution that we would want to uh, pursue here well yeah I mean there are communist dictatorship with command and control uh, economy for sure but what they have done in terms of the scaling up of solar uh, energy particularly they're the reason solar panels are so cheap in the United States you know, that wasn't an effort by the United States government to 
you know, subsidize solar or tax fossil fuels or invest in R&D. We're the beneficiaries. All the people in America who've been putting this cheap, you know, relatively cheap solar on their houses, we're the beneficiary of what the Chinese have done by spending an enormous amount of money on ramping up production of solar panels. And if America, which is one of the most, you know, advanced and ingenious economies in the world, if America applied that type of effort to batteries and, you know, building out our electrical grids across the country and redesigning our cities, if we apply our economic power and ingenuity to this problem at the same scale that, you know, a country like China has or some of the other countries in the world, uh, we could solve this problem relatively quickly. It would take a huge sustained effort. It would require, you know, enormous political capital uh, in Washington to get this done. But, but it could be done. It's not, uh, there's not really a lot of technological barriers. And there's not uh, many economic barriers. Because like I said, you know, going to a, transitioning to a green economy is, is in the long run far more profitable for everybody, uh, far more sustainable, and uh, increase a lot of economic growth for average people you know, during, that, during that transition. You know, I think there's a lot of cognitive dissidence that takes place. I mean, when you look at, like, events taking place, like, for example, you know, Hurricane Maria or Sandy that have, you know, really impacted coastal communities, uh, the forest fires taking place in California due to rising temperatures, you would you would think that more young people would be motivated to look to address the issue than maybe there are. Um, I mean, when you see examples of climate change taking place in front of you on that kind of a scale, and still you don't have large turnout, how do you get larger turnout? Well, my, the thing that was surprising to me in my movie was not simply the, um, it, it's a lack of awareness. I mean, people who follow, who are in the media, who follow the news, who do a lot of reading, we're far more um, up to date on what's going on with political and economic and environmental issues than the average person. The average person is not a news consumer. I mean, the, the vast majority of people who follow political news in this country is really, you know, it's like we're like 2 or 3% of the population that aggressively follows political news. On a regular basis, and I'm not talking about people who listen to, you know, propaganda like Fox News and talk radio. I'm talking about people who follow like, you know, mainstream news and try to stay up on top of the issues. That percentage of the population is really, really small. Small number of people. The vast majority of people don't follow the news or follow issues in that great detail, and so it's more difficult to reach them. But again, this is um, this apathy that I've, you know, that people kind of blame on young people is not from a lack of caring. It's from being simply unaware. It's not that they don't care. They're simply unaware. And one of the things in my film that I talked about is I talked about, you know, the vote margin in 2016 between the two candidates. Uh, in 2016, the vote margin between Trump and Clinton was 3 million votes. And then I asked the young people in my, in my film, I asked them, how many people do you think, how many young people do you think skipped the election? They automatically assume that the number of young people who skipped the election is less than 3 million can vote difference between the two candidates with three million votes. So they automatically assume that their generation could not have changed that election. And they, they give me answers like, I don't know, a million voters didn't vote, young people, a million and a half young people didn't vote, well, higher than that. Two million people didn't, young people didn't vote. Let's keep going. They have no idea the huge numbers of young people who did not participate in that election. And that's because they're simply unaware. 
you know, it's not that they don't care. It's not like they see this problem and know that, hey, I can fix it if I vote it. They don't know that they can fix it. And that's the, the big reveal in my film is the enormous power that young people have their vote should they decide to exercise that power to change our economic, environmental, and political policies in this country. And I think the trigger to getting them to care is also this lack of awareness of the temperatures. When I asked them in the film, and you see it's uh, you know, one of the most compelling parts of the film, I asked them, how hot do you think it's going to get during, life, during your lifetime? Let's say by the 2050s, when you're middle-aged. And they think, oh, I don't know, 104, 105? Keep going. 106? Higher than that. 110? And I slowly walk them up to the, you know, the terrifying answer. And, and people don't know this. So it's not that they don't care. The apathy is not from a position of I don't care. It's, I'm simply unaware. And I think that's why the film will be powerful, not just now, but for the next couple of years, because this is new information to young people especially. And I think that is what, what triggers a, you know, widespread changes in our economy and our politics is new information. I mean, look at the housing bubble popping. Everybody found out that all those mortgage-backed securities were fake. You know, they were fake investments. And, and, and overnight, the entire economy changed. So I, I think new information, uh, if it's true, uh, it, it can be quite powerful and, and change the, the country and the world in ways that are, uh, you know, beyond what you would expect. So you made the, the film to help educate and inform young people to motivate them to take action. How are you promoting the film? Like, how are you... How are you systematically reaching out to put it in front of young people? That's a great question, and that's a difficult question. This is a this is my first movie, and I, you know, you would be surprised at how difficult it is um, when you don't have a resume to make a film. Uh, I tried for like three months to hire a producer to help me, and I went out to different social, you know, networking platforms looking for people who've done environmental themed films before, and all I got was absolute silence. I would send out emails saying, hey, I'm new with this, I'd like to hire a producer, don't know what my budget is, can you get back to me? And if you can't, maybe you could refer me to someone who might be interested. Absolute silence. And it was stunning to me. And so I probably spent three months, and I had a few interested, and they said, hey, maybe we'll look at that, and I kept waiting for them to make up their mind, and then they, they passed. So I, I spent three months last fall, you know, trying to hire somebody to do this, to help me. And it turned out no one wanted to help. So I had to do it all myself. And I had, had to hire an editor myself and find out all about all the stuff myself. And as a result, um, the film took longer to make than I thought. So it didn't get released until literally just a few weeks before the election. Um, and, you know, getting it loaded to iTunes, that process took longer than was advertised. The company I used, you know, took, you know, almost three times as long to get it up to iTunes as they said they would. And uh, so the, the whole process was long, uh, unexpected delays, just from my lack of experience in this area. So how do we get it marketed? Well, um, I do have uh, a group of activists who are you know, very passionate about this film, who've been helping to spread the word among people involved in the climate change movement, people involved in the politics of this. I've hired a publicist who's gotten a little bit of press, and I, I think we'll be getting a little bit more press in the next couple of weeks, and the film has just been out a week. So, so I think that will help as well. But what I'm most optimistic about is the young people who are involved in climate change and involved in the politics of that, they're very well connected on the internet. So my goal is to reach out to these groups over the next weeks and months to let them know the existence of this film, because I think it would be a wonderful and powerful tool for young people to bring 
um, their peers into this movement. You know, their peers who aren't regular voters, who don't know a lot about this, the danger that's coming to them from climate change, and, and don't realize the, the full potential of their political power. So it's going to be a, a grassroots type of campaign because those those people are well connected on the internet, uh, and they're they're very good at spreading stuff across the internet when they find that that's, that's compelling. And for me, I think that would be the most effective way to market it, as opposed to you know. You know, blowing thousands of dollars on a marketing campaign that they may not hit your target audience, which is you know these young people who are you know plugged into the climate change uh, political uh, movement and would like to share that information with other young people. Cool. So, um, if somebody wants to watch the film, what's it called and where can they find it? Okay, so the film is called "How Hot Is It Going to Get," and we have a Facebook page that uh, "How Hot Is It Going to Get" movie, and you can go to our website. How hot is it going to get? dot com, and I would encourage everyone to put dot com on the end of that because uh, the search engine, the website doesn't always come up, uh, you know, near the top. If we get more press, the website and the press will be, you know, higher up in the search engines. But you can certainly find us at how hot is it going to get? dot com. Gotcha. And you said it's on uh, it's on Apple. You, people can watch it in iTunes. Yeah, right now it is on iTunes, um, and it will be coming to Amazon pay-per-view sometime in December. Again, that process is taking time, but it, it's currently on iTunes for pay-per-view. And if you go to our website or our Facebook page, we also have a, a preview, a very compelling preview. And I would suggest anybody who sees the preview and is impressed with it to share it across their social media with their friends. That's uh, one way we can help get word out about the film. And it's a wonderful, like, 30-second preview that just gets to the core of the movie. And it's very, very powerful. Very good. Um, I appreciate your taking the time to uh, chat today. If somebody wants to uh, chat with you or learn more, how can they reach out to you? So we have a Gmail account. It's howhot2050 at gmail.com. And you can find that on our website as well. So it's uh, just howhot2050 at gmail.com. Awesome. Michael, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate it. Awesome.